The series that we're kicking off is called We Are For. And as the video just showed, so often, unfortunately, the church, not just this one, but like the whole church, is known for what we're against. And we really lose, within some of that, what we're actually about, what we are for. And so we're taking five weeks to say a few of the things that we, as a community, are for. Specifically, what this is going to look like is a series for the next five weeks looking at seven of our core values, seven of the, the ministry, maybe postures or dispositions, the seven different things that, that maybe give Encounter Church some like unique angle on what it means to follow Jesus in, in the world today. Hey, and we're kind of kind of get through some of these things. What we're going to do, though, is take a look not just at like as an organization, but what I love about these is they also apply to us as individuals following Jesus as well. So we're going to take a look, both corporately all together and as individuals, what it means to keep Jesus at the center, what it means to bring people far from God to new life in Christ, what it means to do life together, what it means to experience God daily, to love where we live, to practice truth, and to multiply both locally and globally. That's what it means to be at Encounter Church, and that means that's what it means to grow in your faith here. Okay, what's scary is that somebody told me early on, um, as I was just kind of a young ministry leader, um, just kind of like figuring things out, and they say, just like a heads up, in case this little like house church thing and basement church, like school church thing starts to grow into what it is now, just a heads up, that I have found, they told me as a mentor of mine, I have found that what you measure is what you value. Regardless of what's on the website, regardless of what signs are hanging up in the lobby, what you measure is what your value. So the word to the wise is to say, if you walk into a room and the first question that you have is, who's there? That spoke volumes about what you value. If you walk into a room and the first question that you have in every room that you walk into is, how many were there? That speaks volumes about what you value, regardless, again, of what's on the website and what's hanging up in the lobby. And so this, these seven statements kind of grew out of, this, out of this passion to say, let's value the most important things. Let's value keeping Jesus at the center. Let's valuing practicing truth and experiencing God daily. Let's be intentional about what we value. And then, and this is the tough part, and then we're going to measure it together as a community. How are we doing all together? and keeping Jesus at the center? How are we doing at doing life together and experiencing God on a daily basis? How are we doing? So these aren't just values, but they're also metrics because we care so deeply about them and they're not going away. So we might as well dig into them. The first two that we're going to look at is keep Jesus at the center and bring people far from God to new life in Christ. And I was like, kind of putting some of these imagery together of what it means to keep Jesus at the center, right? You think like of a, of a wheel and there's like the, the middle, the hub and spokes like heading out from every angle um, from that middle, from that center. And it's that center that defines like where the edges of the wheel are. And if that analogy doesn't work for you because, you know, I wanted to impress my kids and show them that when I was a kid, we had cooler things than fidget spinners. I brought a yo-yo with me. This is a Dunkin' Fireball in case we got uh, anybody else that yo's. And that was cheesy, I know. So we got just a little walk the dog action, right? But why I bring this is, to, 
Uh, just to show off, I'm, I'm digging in for it. This is not going to work pretty soon. But um, I brought this to, like, to show, to demonstrate that wherever the center is, like, defines not only the edges, but, like, what always brings back to the center. It always comes back to whatever we're keeping at the center. And so, like, if we do one of these, like, right, it always comes back to the middle. I'm quitting while I'm ahead. 50% of the time, it works every time. Uh, so we talk about the center, we talk about the middle, because it's so important, as we just saw, everything always has this natural tendency to come back towards the middle. And so we want to be intentional as a community, we want to be intentional as even individuals about what goes in the center, because if everything's going to come back to it, we need to make sure to be intentional about that. So things that we put in as the center of our lives, sometimes we put career, sometimes we put money. And, and those are kind of like easy ones to look at and to poke at and because it's like, hey, we've got maybe 50, maybe 80 years on this rock. Why would you spend it in a career? Why would you spend it chasing something that you know is ultimately going to be left behind? But we do it anyway. It's a true story. I asked somebody one time, I asked somebody, uh, why in the world they chose to do what they do. Now, the person was an actuary, and if you don't know what that is, they, like, count stuff, and they do a lot of math and statistics. I mean, that's cool. It's not, like, my thing, but, like, that's, they're talking to me about their work, and I'm like, how in the world do you decide to, like, go into that? And the person told me, just straight face, like, not a cracking smile and anything. He goes, you know, I never really thought about it before, but I guess it's because when I was younger, when I was in high school, I read that actuaries make a decent amount of money, and so I thought, I guess I'll do that. And I haven't really checked as to why I'm still doing that. Now, it's not about like being an actuary or the job or like whatever it is, but it's like, but it's like you chose to do like the one thing that you're going to do more than anything else in your life except sleep, and maybe even then that included based solely on this small return that you get that you can spend the minority share of your life on. I mean, it just, it just seems like if you're going to make the center of your life anything, that is really going to let you down sooner rather than later. But, okay, it's shocking to hear, like, big newsflash for you, like, local preacher says, don't make your life about money. That's a shocking statement. I know. <laughs> like, wow, yeah, that's some, some hard truths for me to preach here. All right, let's ramp it up a notch. And this is a lot harder because some of you aren't Christians, some of you don't go to church, and, and that's cool. So right now you can just kind of look at it and say, yeah, that's exactly it, right? In case maybe you're here because somebody promised you lunch afterwards, that's fine, that's cool, glad you're here anyway. You can just maybe sit back for this and just kind of watch how we do things because it's tough sometimes and we don't get it right all the time. One of the things that we make at the center, and this is so dangerous because it's not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. One of the things that we put at the center of our whole lives that everything keeps coming back to and everything serves this one thing and everything is laid up on this altar to this one thing in the church, sometimes we call marriage. And it's like everything, it's not just something, it's everything. And it's like, oh, it's, you gotta have a marriage, you, you gotta be married, and you gotta have a good marriage, and if like there's a divorce or something, or there's a split in the way, it's like, oh my goodness, like this whole thing is like, right? And everything is about this one thing. And the message, here's the, oh, man, the message that we've given, and I'm saying this in a church where like probably 40% of you are single, but the message that we give, and this is dangerous, but I feel like I have to say it anyway, the message that we give is often, well, if you're single, you're not yet like this completed whole person. And so what the church does, what we do, 
is we create these whole ministries called singles ministries. Just as, a, I mean, we say it's something else, but, but really implicitly, it's as a way to like couple up so, so that you don't have to be like part of a person anymore, that you can be a, be a whole person. And like everything serves like this one, I'm going to say idol, but like center of our lives that everything else is in orbit around and keeps coming back to. When actually, if you'd open up the Bible, you start to read some of the things that the apostle Paul said about this. He said, you know what? You know, the way that he talked about singleness is that it's a gift. Singleness is something to be leveraged for God's kingdom. Singleness is a gift. And he goes, oh, and by the way, you know, some of you, and this is his language quoting here, he goes, if you're going to burn with lust, he says in 2 Corinthians, then I suppose it's okay to be married. The way that he talks about marriage is like it's a concession rather than the center of everything, which I think we make it. And so, like, if I can't on behalf of the church, like, I apologize for that because that's just not, it's not right and it's not biblical. Okay, the other one that we make, is, it's a center, and this one's tough too because it's such a good thing, is family. We put the family at the direct middle and we say everything in life serves the family, especially kids, and we reorganize our schedules and reorganize our work lives and reorganize the marriages and reorganize church so that it, it can continually serve the family. It's an anecdote that I heard one time. It's just so incredible. I watched this. Uh, Francis Chan, he's the author, uh, former pastor. He was the keynote at a speaker at this big conference. And he was saying, like, focus on the family. Like, we're all about focus on the family, focus on this, focus on the family, that. It's all focus. He goes, don't focus on the family. That's not right. That's not biblical. Don't focus on the family. Focus on God as the center. Focus on God as the center. And the family will, like, figure itself out in proximity, in in orbit around God at the center. And he said this, and I'm not making this up, he said this as the keynote speaker at a Focus on the Family conference. <laughs> I love it. But it's so true. If we lay everything in our lives, our whole lives, our spiritual lives, our hearts, our, our marriages, everything on the altar of our families, listen, it will let you down. If you make him or her the center of your universe... You will crush him or her with the weight of your expectations for him or her. If you make family, if you make marriage, if you make career, if you make success, the center of your whole lives at the end of the life, if not before, you will come to the realization that it was not enough and it will never be enough and it will leave you alone. So what I want to do this morning is make a case to put the one thing at the center to put the one person at the center that will never leave you down, that will never forsake you, that will never leave you wanting more, that will always continually walk and be with you. And that, friends, is Jesus Christ. Tell you a story because this is so much easier said than done and lived out. This story comes to us in 2 Corinthians verse 22. Or start, chapter 22, starting off in verse 1. We're going to go to second, uh, sorry, I, I think it's a second Kings 22, um, starting off in verse 1. And uh, this story takes place hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. We're about 600 uh, years before Jesus was born. Uh, it happens in the Middle East. And the king, let's just start it off here, his name Josiah, verse, tw- verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He's eight when he becomes king. Some of you know eight-year-olds. Some of you have eight-year-olds. 
eight years old and he becomes king. While everybody else is like in his like grade level is wondering what third grade is going to be like next year, he's becoming king. Let me ask, let me ask a question. What has to happen in order for an eight-year-old to become king? I mean, the kingly lines is a family tradition. So you're looking back and you're going, man, uh, grandpa, dad, like they must have been some kind of awful in order for an eight-year-old to become king. And if that was your reaction, you are exactly right. I want to introduce to you Josiah's dad, Ammon, his name is, and Josiah's grandpa named Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is so bad, is so vile, that the way that the Bible talks about him is that he was the worst king that Israel, uh, northern or southern kingdom, ever had. The way that we're, the Manasseh is described for us, and I don't even want to get into all detail. I can't get into all the detail, but it, but it but it says that he starts with like taking out all of the things of God in the temple around the holy city of Jerusalem. He starts moving all of that stuff out, putting it in closets, covering it up, kind of forgetting. And as if that wasn't enough, he starts importing all of these other religions, all of these other deities, Baal and his uh, goddess wife, Asherah. Uh, he, he starts bringing these things in. And then if that's, that's not enough, there's these fire pits around that they would actually take people, humans, even children, even his children and grandchildren, and sacrifice them to the god Molech. And I mean, it's just so bad. It's so indescribably awful that one observer wrote in, in 2 Kings that, that the, the whole city of Jerusalem, one day after Manasseh had a bad mood or a bad life event or whatever it is, he, he shed so much innocent blood in that city on that one day that there was a line from one end of the city all the way to the other end of the city. This is the level of wretchedness, of paranoia of that king. And he reigned for 55 years. He was so bad and he was so vile that when his son took over, Ammon, and he reigned for only two years, before the palace guard said, what happened to our previous parents and grandparents under the reign of Manasseh can never happen again. And so they did what we'd call today as almost like, like, like a mercy kill. For the sake of the people, the temple, the, sorry, the palace servants had King Ammon assassinated. That's how awful he was. He only reigned for two years. So Josiah as this eight-year-old, right? Because they're going, an eight-year-old is better than these two guys, than Ammon. We'll take him. We'll take the unknown over the known any day. And so Josiah comes through the throne, and he's eight years old, and he's looking behind him at this, this legacy. And I'm just going to kind of call it like it is, this legacy of evil, of, of murder, of treacherous um, uh, just exploitations, just... It's this awful, vile stuff that he's looking. And this is his family history. This is his spiritual heritage behind him. And so you're like listening to this story and going, what on earth is going to happen next? What's going to happen with this Josiah guy? It's a really interesting story. You should read the Bible sometime. And then in verse 2, it's like all the tension is just taken out. He did, Josiah did, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he followed completely the ways of his father, David. It's like 
No, no, no. The way that he's described, he's not the kid of Ammon. He's not the grandson of Manasseh. The way he reigned was more like David, like, like, that, like that David, King David, David reigned. Not turning aside, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now we're talking this morning about what it means to keep Jesus at the center and having the rest of our lives orbit around him as the defining focal point and why that matters so much. And so I, I want to, I feel duty bound to share with you this morning about why I think this Josiah story is so important when it comes to keeping Jesus at the center, keeping God at the center of your life. Because some of you have come here today, and I know because I hear your stories some of you have come here today and you are the first generation Christian. You're looking back behind you and there's a, there's a spiritual heritage that is almost non-existent when it comes to faith, any faith. You maybe walk through the motions a little sometimes, but for the most part, you've never seen this modeled in the home. You've never seen what it means to follow Jesus and have everything in, love, in your family's life orbit around him as the center, him as the foundation. And you're wondering how in the world God is going to show up and pull this thing off. And so I want to show you, I want to tell you that if there is hope for somebody with a spiritual heritage or lack thereof of Josiah, there's hope for all of us. There is hope for you as well. Because, and this is nuts, but I got to say it anyway, because our God, friends, is a God of radical new beginnings. You see it over and over and over again that our God is a God of a radical new beginnings. That just because of there's something ugly in your past, that thing does not define your future. That no matter what mistake is in your past, no matter what doubt is in your past, no matter what shame is in your past, no matter what tragedy is in your past, no matter what embarrassment that, that makes you think that you're disqualified from the faith, no matter what is in your past, that does not define your future because our God is a God of radical new beginnings, as is the case of Josiah. Now, Josiah, when he was a little older, he's in his 20s now, and he decides to undertake the, a, a temple renovation project. Now, this isn't anything extraordinary. This isn't you know, laying his life at the altar of God and saying, you know, your will, not my will. This is, this is like routine maintenance kind of stuff. The temple in Jerusalem was the second largest building in Jerusalem, second only to the palace. You guessed it, where the king lived. Hashtag priorities. Uh, but that doesn't matter, right? Josiah is going to take care of the temple. He's going to start fixing it up like he's supposed to. It's a big structure. There's lots of visitors. Let's be safe. So he started to put a roof on it, patching the walls, like whatever it is. And, and during the course of that reno routine renovation project, friends, something incredible happens. Listen to what I'm talking about. It happens uh, chapter 22, verse 8, where Hilkiah, this is the high priest, he's in charge of the temple, said to Shaphan, the secretary, his helper, I have found, all caps now, the book of the law. It's almost certainly we know it today as our book of Deuteronomy. I've, like, I've found the Bible in the temple. And I just like want to pause right there and say, how bad do things have to get when like you're shocked? You're like, you know, you'll never believe what I saw at church today. Like a Bible, <laughs> right? But nevertheless, that's how big of a deal it is. That's how it happens. So he gives it to Shaphan, the secretary, who read it, verse 10, then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, you'll never believe this, Hilkiah, the priest, gave me, and he says, a book. He gave me a book. 
And so Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. The question that I might have for you is, how does it happen where you're shocked to like see a Bible in church? How does it happen that they're surprised to see the book of the law in the temple? I mean, this is a book that they were supposed to read every single day. This is a book where a copy was supposed to be kept next to the Ark of the Covenant because that's how important it was. This is a book that every year during the Feast of Booths, which is one of the big three festivals that they had every year, on every seventh year, they would gather the entire nation to Jerusalem and they would read out the entire book of Deuteronomy, everything, all of it, in front of all the people. That's how important it was. That's how central it was to the life of the community. How is it that the book next to the Holy of Holy Ark of the Covenant becomes a book tucked away in a closet somewhere to be found later? And the answer that I, I want to share with you is that drift happens. I think we'd be wise in probably considering that we live in a cultural stream, and this is not new to us. This has been going on since 600 years before Jesus was born. We live in a cultural stream that has a natural flow away from God and towards apathy, towards laziness, towards nothing. And even if we're swimming against it, like the, little, like the little salmon that you see on the Nature Channel that are like jumping up, even if we're like paddling and swimming as hard as we possibly can, it's possible to still be moving downstream away from God and towards apathy, because drift happens. What I'm saying is Jesus doesn't naturally become the center of our lives. If you're looking at this and you're going, it is hard, and I don't always get it, and half the time I think I'm failing, what I want to say is welcome to the club, because drift is so real, and it happens so often, and it's so remarkably difficult, not only to make Jesus the center of our lives, but then to keep Jesus at the center against everything that competes for that centered spot. Drift happens. What happens next is everything. Because here's like the secret of the Christian life. We don't talk about too much, but I think we should. It's a good series too. You can be a Christian and make profound mistakes. I mean, you can be a Christian and drift all the way towards the far side of the stream and just start that paddling back. You can be a Christian and mess up so royally. But it's not your past and it's not your actions that define your standing before God. But it's what happens next. Right? It's, it's your reaction to that thing. And so what we're looking at right now isn't did drift happen and doesn't that disqualify Josiah and all the other Israelites. No, no, no. That's not how this faith works. Well, how this faith works is now that you realize that you messed up, what do you do next? And for Josiah's part in verse 11, when the king heard the words from not a book now, but the book of the law, he tore his robes 
Now, that's kind of a funny phrase that we don't think about too often, about like tearing off like our clothes or shirt or jacket or something or whatever. I'm not going to demonstrate. You're welcome for that. It's not... It's not something that we talk about a lot, but it's like if you start to pick up a Bible, you start to read through like again and again and again, you'll start to realize over and over and over, like like there's so many people in the Bible that tear their robes, that tear their clothes in the presence of God or the presence of, of like realizing their shame or realizing their guilt or realizing their radical need for a turn, for a change, for repentance. And then they, as an outward demonstration of this, they would, they would tear their clothes. Cultural thing. We don't need to understand it. But what we do want to make sure to observe is that there's so many people in the Bible who tore their robes as a sign of this grief, of this change. And some of them meant it. Reuben tore his clothes after he threw his kid brother down into a pit and his other brothers sold him off. I got some youngest issues I'm kind of dealing with, so I go to that one pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> He, t- he tears his robes in light of all this. Um, David tears his robes when he's outed for his adultery and for his um, m- murder and other stuff going on there. He tears his robe. Other, uh, Elijah tears his robes. Job tears his robe. Mordecai in the story of Esther tears his robes. In fact, even the evil, nasty, awful king Ahab, almost like Manasseh bad Ahab, tore his robes. Just because you do something, just because you say something doesn't mean there's actually a change that happens. A change happens when we start to institute, we're going to call this morning these holy habits that make the difference between empty words and new life. That's what they were missing. That's what happens when Manasseh takes like the book of the law and it just kind of like moves it over here and moves it over here and moves it over here until it's gone entirely so he doesn't have to think about it anymore. Josiah says, no, 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 we're not going to be like that. And so he starts to pattern his life around making sure that he comes back to these holy habits around here, the values experiencing God daily through Bible reading and through prayer. It's these holy habits that make the difference between just saying something and going through the motions, maybe making a a half-hearted promise to God, next time I guess I'll try to do better, and, and actually experiencing the new life that Jesus came to give. It's these holy habits and these, and these rhythms that make that difference. And so I might like encourage you to, to think about what it might mean. Like if Bible reading is your thing, let's say. Let's go to that one because I think it's a good thing and I think every Christian is called to it. Is to take that Bible out of the drawer, out of the closet, out of your desk, wherever you might keep it, out of your car, to take that Bible out and maybe set it on the coffee table or maybe set it on the nightstand or maybe set it on the kitchen counter because you'll walk by and you'll see it every time and you'll be convicted every time about what's inside of here. And it starts to institute these holy habits in our life. And they make the difference between empty words or maybe torn robes and actual real change that isn't cheap, that isn't shallow, that isn't short-lived. This change that we call life, new life, when the dead parts start to come off. And what we want to know next, Josiah, when you tore your robes, When you prayed that prayer, when you said that you were sorry, did you mean it? Or is this just like all the other kings in the past, that you're just afraid of getting in trouble? 
Or you're just afraid about what God might do to you. Did you really mean it? And we read again, a chapter later now, in 2023, verse 6. Listen, listen to Josiah's reaction, and you be the judge. He took the Asherah pole, that's the, Baal's goddess wife, the Asherah pole from the temple, from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder, scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. Oh, by the way, he desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Beth Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. Furthermore, Joshua got rid of the, of the mediums, the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all of the detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. The picture that the, that the author here paints for us is he goes to the temple with massive structure. He takes all of the stuff, all of the fire pits where human sacrifice took place, the Asherah poles and the Baal statues. He takes all of this junk. He cuts it down. He drags it all over, probably to the eastern edge of the wall of the, of the temple where there was a 400-foot wall, 400-foot drop to the Kidron Valley below. He takes all of it. He just like starts pushing it overboard to get it out of the temple, get it out of God's sight. And then he goes back around and he goes down to the Kidron Valley below and he lights a match and burns it. And after it gets done burning until it won't burn anymore, he takes the shards that are left over and he starts pulverizing it into powder. And then he takes that powder and he goes out to all of the common places and he scatters it all around because he doesn't want anybody, even a single person, to ever remember these other gods, these other centers of life, and be tempted to worship them ever again. Let me ask, let me ask, does that sound like a sign of somebody with empty words and half-hearted promises? Or does that person seem like somebody who has such a passion and such an enthusi- a holy enthusiasm for, for, for finding this treasure we call faith, this gift that's called grace, that, that he, is, he is willing to do anything and everything to lay it all before the altar of God and say it all, God, revolves around you as the center. And now that I have found new life, I don't want anybody to be tempted with anything less than that, less than new life. He lays it all out, the economic, maybe even political cost to him must have been just massive. But for him, it didn't matter because it all pales in comparison to the new life that he had just received. Listen, friends, I don't want you to be mistaken. When we read the New Testament, we read that what it means to follow Jesus is to deny ourselves, is to take up the cross and follow him. But if I could leave you with just one thing, Whatever it is that you make at the center of your life, whatever it is that orbits around that thing, I want you to know that Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one that will demand your life from you.
but then hand it back and give you not just life, but life eternally. That's why he deserves to be at the center of your life and mine. That's why he deserves to be at the center of everything that we do. That our work, our families, our marriages, our money, everything serves him. There's a story that I heard earlier on. I was listening to this author, Kevin Harney, if you're wondering, and he he went away to summer camp one time. He's fifth fifth grade. And much to his parents' severe disappointment, he became a Christian at summer camp. And then he came back and he was like really into his faith, right? Like as a new Christian, he's a kind of kid now, fifth grade, that when he's told that this is the word of God, he believed it. And all summer long, he just poured through it. And he got to King's. He got to these stories. And in his bedroom, he makes a poster on the wall and he just labels them good and bad. And he just writes their name because that's how the author of Kings and Chronicles identifies the kings. They were either good or bad. And it just struck him to take his whole existence, to take his whole life, and to summarize it for these kings into one word, either good or bad. And he made a commitment that day that he would live out his, the rest of his life, all of his days, to be on the good side of that poster hanging on the wall. And he simply couldn't. And none of us can. What it means, though, to keep Jesus at the center, and why? I will never fully understand it, of the beauty is that when we live out the rest of our lives and we get to that place where we meet God face to face with eternity just behind him and we have that fearful moment when we're being cast as either good or bad, it's God the Father who looks down from his holy place at each one of us and he says, it's not because you're good, it's because I am. And out of my goodness, I now look at you and see the righteousness of my son, the center of your life all along, and clothed with his and his righteousness alone, I declare you now good, welcome, good and faithful servant. I want that. I want you to want that. And when all of us get together as a community, we get to commit as a community, we get so passionate and we get so excited about that message of new life that everything else pales in comparison to this new life that we have just received. We go out, we tell everybody we can so that no matter who you are or what you've done or what's in your past, whether you're near to God or far from God, that there is a new life for you after the dead parts start to come off. And it's worth everything. And as Christians, as we gather together and as we start to form these communities called churches and fellowships, as we come together, it makes us kind of unique. And we do things a certain way because here at Encounter Church, we keep Jesus at the center of everything. 
And believe me, the irony is not lost on me. When we're going to talk about keeping Jesus at the center, and we're going to go to a story in the Bible at 600 years before Jesus was ever born, because friends, the story of your life and the story of my life, the story of God that he is telling in the Bible is one where every single word and every single story points to his son, Jesus Christ, as the center of it all. And when you come to this church and you bring your kids along, or your nephews and nieces, when you bring your friends' kids along, and you come into these classrooms, and you see the artwork hanging up on the wall, friends, I make you this promise, because we keep Jesus at the center. You will not see artwork and paintings hanging on the wall that say things like, always tell the truth, and do better next time, and share with your friends. Because that's religion and that's not Jesus. And Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive again. And so when you come here, you hear the gospel proclaimed to you because it's nothing short than new life. Starting with Josiah, one for us by Jesus, and coming to each and every one of us. He is worth it. Keep Jesus at the center. Let's bring people far from God.